Section 46 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 44. Louis the Fourteenth, His Wars and His Conquests, Part 3. Louis the Fourteenth had good reason to, quote, push forward to the attack and put himself in too great peril, end quote. A rumor had circulated that, having run the same risk at the siege of Lille, he had let a moment's hesitation appear. The old Duke of Charot, captain of his guards, had come up to him and, quote, Sir, he had whispered in the young king's ear, the wine is drawn and it must be drunk. End quote. Louis the Fourteenth had finished his reconnaissance, not without a feeling of gratitude towards Charot for preferring before his life that honor which ended by becoming his idol. The king was back at Saint-Germain, preparing enormous armaments for the month of April. He had given the Prince of Condé the government of Franche-Comté. I had always esteemed your father, he said to the young Duke of Enghien, but I had never loved him. Now I love him as much as I esteem him. Young Louvois, already in high favor with the king, as well as his father, Michael Le Tellier, had contributed a great deal towards getting the prince's services appreciated. They still smarted under the reproaches of M. de Turenne touching the deficiency of supplies for the troops before Lille in 1667. War seemed to be imminent. The last days of the armistice were at hand. Quote, the opinion prevailing in France as to peace is a disease which is beginning to spread very much, wrote Louvois in the middle of March. But we shall soon find a cure for it, as here is the time approaching for taking the field. You must publish almost everywhere that it is the Spaniards who do not want peace. Louvois lied brazen-facedly. The Spaniards were without resources, but they had even less of spirit than of resources. They consented to the abandonment of all the places won in the Low Countries during 1667. A congress was opened at Aix-la-Chapelle, presided over by the nuncio of the new pope, Clement IX, as favorable to France as his predecessor, Innocent X, had been to Spain. Quote, a phantom arbiter between phantom plenipotentiaries, says Voltaire, in the siècle de Louis XIV. The real negotiations were going on at Saint-Germain. I did not look merely, writes Louis the Fourteenth, to profit by the present conjuncture, but also to put myself in a position to turn to my advantage those who might probably arrive. In view of the great increments that my fortune might receive, nothing seemed to me more necessary than to establish for myself amongst my smaller neighbors such a character for moderation and probity as might assuage in them those emotions of dread which everybody naturally experiences at sight of too great a power. I was bound not to lack means of breaking with Spain when I pleased. Franche-Comté, which I gave up, might become reduced to such a condition that I should be master of it at any moment, and my new conquests, well secured, would open for me a surer entrance into the Low Countries. Determined by these wise motives, the king gave orders to sign the peace. M. de Turenne appeared yesterday like a man who had received a blow from a club, writes Michael Le Tellier to his son. When Don Juan arrives, matters will change. He says that meanwhile all must go on just the same, and he repeated it more than a dozen times, which made the prince laugh. Don Juan did not protest, and on the 2nd of May, 1668, the peace of Aix-la-Chapelle was concluded. Before giving up Franche-Comté, the king issued orders for demolishing the fortifications of Dole and Gray. He at the same time commissioned Vauban to fortify Arth, Lille, and Tournay. 
The Triple Alliance was triumphant, the Hollanders at the head. Quote, I cannot tell Your Excellency all that these beer-brewers write to our traders, said a letter to M. de Lyon from one of his correspondents. As there is just now nothing further to hope for, in respect of the Low Countries, I vent all my feelings upon the Hollanders, whom I hold at this day to be our most formidable enemies, and I exhort Your Excellency, as well for your own reputation as for the public satisfaction, to omit from your policy nothing that may tend to the discovery of means to abase this great power, which exalts itself too much. Louis the Fourteenth held the same views as M. de Lyon's correspondent, not merely from resentment against the Hollanders, who had stopped him in his career of success, but because he quite saw that the key to the barrier between the Catholic Low Countries and himself remained in the hands of the United Provinces. He had relied upon his traditional influence in the estates, as well as on the influence of John van Witt. But the latter's position had been shaken. Quote, I learn from a good quarter that there are great cabals forming against the authority of M. de Witt, and for the purpose of ousting him from it, writes M. de Lyon on the 30th of March, 1668. Louis the Fourteenth resolved to have recourse to arms in order to humiliate this insolent republic which had dared to hamper his designs. For four years every effort of his diplomacy tended solely to make Holland isolated in Europe. It was to England that France would naturally first turn her eyes. The sentiments of King Charles II and of his people as regarded Holland were not the same. Charles had not forgiven the estates for having driven him from their territory at the request of Cromwell. The simple and austere manners of the republican patricians did not accord with his taste for luxury and debauchery. The English people, on the contrary, despite of that rivalry in, trade and on the seas which had been the source of so much ancient and recent hostility between the two nations, esteemed the Hollanders and leaned towards an alliance with them. Louis the Fourteenth, in the eyes of the English Parliament, was the representative of Catholicism and absolute monarchy, two enemies which it had vanquished but still feared. The King's proceedings with Charles the Second had therefore necessarily to be kept secret. The ministers of the King of England were themselves divided. The Duke of Buckingham, as mad and as prodigal as his father, was favourable to France. The Earl of Arlington had married a Hollander, and persisted in the Triple Alliance. Louis the Fourteenth employed in this negotiation his sister-in-law, Madame Mariette, who was much attached to her brother, the King of England, and was intelligent and adroit. She was on her return from a trip to London, which she had with great difficulty snatched from the jealous susceptibilities of Monsieur, when she died suddenly at Versailles on the 30th of June, 1670. Quote, it were impossible to praise sufficiently the incredible dexterity of this princess in treating the most delicate matters, in finding a remedy for those hidden suspicions which often keep them in suspense, and in terminating all difficulties in such a manner as to conciliate the most opposite interests. This was the subject of all talk, when on a sudden resounded like a clap of thunder that astounding news, Madame is dying, Madame is dead, and there, in spite of that great heart, is this princess, so admired and so beloved, there as death has made her for us. Bossuet, Horizon Funèbre d'Henriette d'Angleterre. Madame's work was nevertheless accomplished, and her death was not destined to interrupt it. The Treaty of Alliance was secretly concluded, signed by only the Catholic councillors of Charles II. It bore that the King of England was resolved to publicly declare his return to the Catholic Church. The King of France was to aid him towards the execution of this project, with assistance to the amount of two millions of livres of Tours. The two princes bound themselves to remain faithful to the peace of Aix-la-Chapelle as regarded Spain, 
and to declare war together against the United Provinces, the King of France would have to supply to his brother of England, for this war, a subsidy of three million livres of Tours every year. When the Protestant ministers were admitted to share the secret, silence was kept as to the declaration of Catholicity, which was put off till after the war in Holland. Parliament had granted the King thirteen hundred thousand pounds sterling to pay his debts, and eight hundred thousand pounds to, quote, equip in the ensuing spring, end quote, a fleet of fifty vessels, in order that he might take the part he considered most expedient for the glory of his kingdom and the welfare of his subjects. Quote, the government of our country is like a great bell which you cannot stop when it is once set going, said King Charles the Second, anxious to commence the war in order to handle the subsidies the sooner. He was, nevertheless, obliged to wait. Louis the Fourteenth had succeeded in dragging him into an enterprise contrary to the real interests of his country as well as of his national policy. In order to arrive at his ends, he had set at work all the evil passions which divided the court of England. He had bought up the king, his mistresses and his ministers. He had dangled before the fanaticism of the Duke of York the spectacle of England converted to Catholicism. But his work was not finished in Europe. He wished to assure himself of the neutrality of Germany in the great duel he was meditating with the Republic of the United Provinces. As long ago as 1667, Louis the Fourteenth had practically paved the way towards the neutrality of the empire by a secret treaty regulating the eventual partition of the Spanish monarchy. In case the little king of Spain died without children, France was to receive the Low Countries, Franche-Comté, Navarre, Naples, and Sicily. Austria was to keep Spain and Milaness. The Emperor Leopold therefore turned a deaf ear to the entreaties of the Hollanders, who would fain have bound him down to the Triple Alliance. A new convention between France and the Empire, secretly signed on the 1st of November, 1670, made it reciprocally obligatory on the two princes not to aid their enemies. The German princes were more difficult to win over. They were beginning to feel alarm at the pretensions of France. The electors of Trèves and of Mayence had already collected some troops on the Rhine. The Duke of Lorraine seemed disposed to lend them assistance. Louis the Fourteenth seized the pretext of the restoration of certain fortifications contrary to the Treaty of Marsal. On the 23rd of August, 1675, he ordered Marshal Crequy to enter Lorraine. At the commencement of September, the whole duchy was reduced, and the Duke a fugitive. Quote, the king had at first been disposed to give up Lorraine to some one of the princes of that house, writes Louvois but just now he no longer considers that province to be a country which he ought to quit so soon and it appears likely that as he sees more and more every day how useful that conquest will be for the unification of his kingdom he will seek the means of preserving it for himself in point of fact the king in answer to the emperor's protests replied that he did not want to turn lorraine to account for his own profit but that he would not give it up at the solicitations of anybody Brandenburg and Saxony alone refused point-blank to observe neutrality. France had renounced Protestant alliances in Germany, and the Protestant electors comprehended the danger that threatened them. Sweden also comprehended it, but Gustavus Adolphus and Ochsenstiern were no longer there. There remained nothing but the remembrance of old alliances with France. The Swedish senators gave themselves up to the buyer one after another. Quote, when you have made some stay at Stockholm, wrote Courtin, the French ambassador in Sweden, to M. de Pomponne, and seen the vanity of the Gascons of the North, the little honesty there is in their conduct, the cabals which prevail in the Senate, and the feebleness and inertness of those who compose it, you cannot be surprised at the delays and changes which take place. 
If the Senate of Rome had shown as little inclination as that of Sweden at the present time for war, the Roman Empire would not have been of so great an extent. The treaty, however, was signed on the 14th of April, 1672. In consideration of an annual subsidy of 600,000 livres, Sweden engaged to oppose by arms those princes of the empire who should determine to support the United Provinces. The gap was forming round Holland. In spite of the secrecy which enveloped the negotiations of Louis XIV, Van Witt was filled with disquietude. Favorable as ever to the French alliance, he had sought to calm the irritation of France, which set down the Triple Alliance to the account of Holland. Quote, I remarked, says a letter in 1669 from M. de Pomponne, French ambassador at The Hague, that it seemed to me a strange thing that, whereas this republic had two kings for its associates in the Triple Alliance, it affected in some sort to put itself at their head so as to do all the speaking, and that it was willing to become the seat of all the manoeuvres that were going on against France, which was very likely to render it suspected of some prepossession in favour of Spain. John Van Witt defended his country with dignified modesty. Quote, I know not whether to regard as a blessing or a curse, said he, the incidents which have for several years past brought it about that the most important affairs of Europe have been transacted in Holland. It must no doubt be attributed to the situation and condition of this state which, whilst putting it after all the crowned heads, cause it to be readily agreed to as a place without consequence. But as for the prepossession of which we are suspected in favour of Spain, it cannot surely be forgotten what aversion we have, as it were sucked in with our milk towards that nation, the remnants that still remain of a hatred fed by so much blood and such long wars, which make it impossible for my part that my inclination should ever turn towards that crown. Hatred to Spain was not so general in Holland as Van Witt represented, and internal dissensions amongst the estates, sedulously fanned by France, were slowly ruining the authority of the aristocratic and republican party, only to increase the influence of those who favoured the house of Nassau. In his far-sighted and sagacious patriotism, John Van Witt had for a long time past foreseen the defeat of his cause, and he had carefully trained up the heir of the stadtholders, William of Nassau, the natural head of his adversaries. It was this young prince whom the policy of Louis the Fourteenth at that time opposed to Van Witt in the councils of the United Provinces, thus strengthening in advance the indomitable foe who was to triumph over all his greatness and vanquish him by dint of defeats. The dispatch of an ambassador to Spain, to form there an alliance offensive and defensive, was decided upon. Quote, M. de Beverninck, who has charge of this mission, is without doubt a man of strength and ability, said M. de Pomponne, and there are many who put him on a par with M. de Witt. It is true that he is not on a par with the other the whole day long, and that with the sobriety of morning he often loses the desert and capacity that were his up to dinner-time. The Spaniards at first gave but a cool reception to the overtures of the Hollanders. Quote, they look at their monarchy through the spectacles of Philip II, said Beverninck, and they take a pleasure in deceiving themselves whilst they flatter their vanity. Fear of the encroachments of France carried the day, however. Quote, they consider, wrote M. de Lyon, that if they left the United Provinces to ruin, they would themselves have but the favour granted by the Cyclops to be eaten last. A defensive league was concluded between Spain and Holland, and all the efforts of France could not succeed in breaking it. John Van Witt was negotiating in every direction. The treaty of Charles II with France had remained a profound secret, and the Hollanders believed that they might calculate upon the good will of the English nation. 
The arms of England were effaced from the Royal Charles, a vessel taken by Van Tromp in 1667, and a curtain was put over a picture, in the town hall of Dordrecht, of the victory of Chatham, representing the Ruart, or Inspector of Dykes, Cornelius Van Witt leaning on a cannon. These concessions to the pride of England were not made without a struggle. Quote, some, says M. de Pomponne, thought it a piece of baseness to despoil themselves during peace of tokens of the glory they had won in the war. Others, less sensitive on this point of delicacy, and more affected by the danger of disobliging a crown which formed the first and at this date the most necessary of their connections, preferred the less spirited but safer to the honourable but more dangerous counsels. Charles II played with Boreel, ambassador of the United Provinces at the Court of London. Taking advantage of the estate's necessity in order to serve his nephew the Prince of Orange, he demanded for him the office of Captain-General, which had been filled by his ancestors. Already the Prince had been recognized as Premier Noble of Zealand, and he had obtained entrance to the Council. John Van Witt raised against him the vote of the Estates of Holland, still preponderant in the Republic. Quote, the Grand Pensionary soon appeased the murmurs and complaints that were being raised against him, writes M. de Pomponne. He prefers the greatest dangers to the re-establishment of the Prince of Orange, and to his re-establishment on the recommendation of the King of England. He would consider that the Republic accepted a double yoke, both in the person of a chief who, from the post of Captain-General, might rise to all those which his fathers had filled, and in accepting him at the instance of a suspected crown. The Grand Pensionary did not err. In the spring of 1672, in spite of the loss of M. de Lyon, who died September 1, 1671, all the negotiations of Louis XIV had succeeded. His armaments were completed. He was at last about to crush that little power which had for so long a time past presented an obstacle to his designs. Quote, the true way of arriving at the conquest of the Spanish Low Countries is to abase the Hollanders and annihilate them if it be possible, said Louvois to the Prince of Condé on the 1st of November, 1671. And the king wrote in an unpublished memorandum, quote, in the midst of all my successes during my campaign of 1667, neither England nor the Empire, convinced as they were of the justice of my cause, whatever interest they may have had in checking the rapidity of my conquests, offered any opposition. I found in my path only my good, faithful, and old friends the Hollanders, who, instead of interesting themselves in my fortune as the foundation of their dominion, wanted to impose laws upon me and oblige me to make peace and even dared to use threats in case I refused to accept their mediation. I confess that their insolence touched me to the quick, and that at the risk of whatever might happen to my conquests in the Spanish Low Countries, I was very near turning all my forces against this proud and ungrateful nation. But having summoned prudence to my aid, and considered that I had neither number of troops nor quality of allies requisite for such an enterprise, I dissimulated. I concluded peace on honourable conditions, resolved to put off the punishment of such perfidy to another time. The time had come. To the last attempt towards conciliation made by Van Groot, son of the celebrated Grotius, in the name of the States-General, the king replied with threatening haughtiness, quote, When I discovered that the United Provinces were trying to debauch my allies, and were soliciting kings, my relatives, to enter into offensive leagues against me, I made up my mind to put myself in a position to defend myself, and I levied some troops, but I intend to have more by the spring, and I shall make use of them at that time in the manner I shall consider most proper for the welfare of my dominions and for my own glory. End, quote. End of section 46